Always remember the art of good business is being a good middleman. Bye-bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the OG Middleman Podcast. I am your host and still not 100% in the well-being department fighting off this bug. It's been a bitch, man. I've been thinking about it, and this is the longest, this is the most I've ever been sick. I can say that I have felt shitty more in the last two months than I have my entire month, my entire life, rather. It's been brutal, and I still can't shake it. I'm actually going to go to a steam room and see if that might help me today. I'm going to kind of go and sit in there for a half an hour, see if I can get out some of this gunk that's still in my chest. Um, so, very interesting conversation last night debate that I that I've had ongoing with many people over the years music fans in general personal music fans of mine so I'm late 50s and I grew up in the age of what now everybody calls classic rock but eventually the 80s are now classic rock and 90s are going to be classic rock and you know how that goes so I grew up in the 70s to 80s. I was born in 1964, so music to me didn't really start to get serious probably until like the mid-70s, but more, more in the 80s. And I went through a transition over time of what my musical interest, interests were, trying to discover what I liked the most. And as, as we all do, we're going to follow the, the pack most of the time, especially in our younger years. We're going to listen to what our friends are listening to or what we hear mostly on, the, on back then, you know, AM radio and, and that kind of stuff. And those are going to be our first musical influencers. So for me, in the beginning, I would say my first fandom kind of thing was with the rock group Kiss. I, you know, I was part of the Kiss Army and I had posters and all this kind of stuff. Um, my first concert was Kiss in Madison Square Garden. I think it was 1975, somewhere around there. Um, you know, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. I liked Ace Freely. My he was my favorite, the guitar player, Peter Chris. But, you know, collected all the albums and, and you know, wore costumes at Halloween so Kiss was there, and then, you know, at the same time Kiss was going on, I, I was only focused on Kiss. Anybody else wasn't good enough for me, even though Led Zeppelin was very popular at that time. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of where I first started listening to music was Kiss. And then um, later on, a little bit more classic rock. Back then it wasn't classic. It was just rock and roll. ACDC, Black Sabbath, went through all of these phases. Um, I'm from New Jersey, but I was never really like a huge Springsteen guy. I'm a, I'm a more of a Springsteen guy now than I was 
when he was most popular, you know, born in the USA days. I, I lean more towards Bon Jovi, you know, for, from the New Jersey dudes. And, and then I went, you know, I, I went away, basically. I didn't go to college. I joined the Navy. And then while I was in the Navy, some of the people that I met introduced me to new music. And new music influenced me. <coughs> Madonna was an influencer, believe it or not. But the biggest one for me was Prince. Prince changed everything for me on a lot of topics. Changed the way that I listened to music because I was more now listening to the composition of the music and the arrangements and you know the production the lyrics became really important to me and trying to understand what that artist was speaking of and prince and his his music influenced me on a lot of different levels um religion um love sex sexuality um sensuality all of that stuff i was influenced through through his music so needless to say when he died it was a pretty big loss for me um but it, it also changed my perspective on music because what I knew to be really good music in the past, unfortunately to me, paled in comparison to Prince. And then I got, started getting deeper and deeper into soul music, R&B, hip hop, and, and then that kind of took hold. And still to this day, it's my main influence. I I'm I lean towards R&B hip hop more than anything and that's from my New York City New Jersey days. Um so I go to shows, I go to concerts and I look for I I went to enough concerts to know that I don't have to go to every concert just because somebody that I like is in town especially if it's somebody that I've seen a lot of times. Unless it's a special person who I recognize that they're fantastic and I got to see them in a certain place because it's going to be special. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is that I kind of like to go to concerts where I think, me personally, that it's going to be something very unique and very special and I get a FOMO kind of feeling come over me and I feel like I'm going to miss something. So I, I follow a lot of different uh, sites that tell me about bands that are going to be in town or new, new concerts coming out. I'm not going to go see a Taylor Swift kind of thing. I'm not going to go see a Justin Bieber kind of thing. Although, you know, I enjoy them both as artists. Um, they're just, what they're doing doesn't, it's just repetitive. And I don't think it's going to be something very special and unique. It's just, if I, if you see them once, then pretty much everything after that's going to be the same. That's just my personal opinion. Now, if you're fans of those artists and you know, you just want to see them every time, I get it. I totally get it. But now, because it's such work to get to a concert and the cost and, you know, the effort and, and all that stuff. It's just now I have, I'm, I'm choosy. I have friends who at the drop of the hat are going to go to concerts. You know, they'll go to one a week, 
if they could. You know, I have one friend who she probably saw three a week. It was never ending. To me, that's like just it's watering down the experience of going to a concert. So I look for the epic event or something that is going to be unique and special. I'll give you an example that just happened. We went to see Elton John's last concert at Dodger Stadium. And, you know, I specifically sought that out. I would have went to see Elton John's last concert in America, wherever it was. So when, when I found out that it was going to be his last show, um, I said, okay, where is it? Dodger Stadium. Oh, how perfect, because that's where one of his most famous shows ever was. Local to me, great. And I bought the last show. So November 20th, I think it was. So I wanted it to be the last one. Even though they were probably all similar in scope and feeling, I just felt like the energy of the last show from an iconic artist, iconic, one of the greatest to ever grace the music industry that spans generations doing his last show in Los Angeles. I had to be there because what you look for in these situations is the energy, the energy from the, from the artists for sure. And the band who recognizes the, um, implications of what's happening that night, but more importantly, the audience. And when I walked into the Dodger Stadium, I felt it right away. And I've been to a lot of concerts. I never felt anything like that. And, uh, and I haven't felt like that in a very long time. There were some other concerts and maybe an artist uh, who I won't name right now for the evil that he's doing, but I went to a couple of that artist shows that were kind of that same kind of feeling this really great anticipation and it's kind of happening again now because yesterday the 2023 Coachella um, lineup was was announced and I'm a big Frank Ocean fan now Frank Ocean has not put out a lot of music so I'm basing, you know, my, you know, belief on him as an artist and, and how influencing he is to, to me musically, um, just based on small samples. I saw him, I loved his music. So needless to say, I listened to his music over and over again, and it's in certain rotations playlists that I play a lot. I love his music. And I saw him play at FYF Festival, I want to say it was five years ago, maybe six years ago, and I'm also pretty sure that was like the last time that he performed live. And he's enigmatic, you know, he, he's reclusive. So when he, when I was going to see FYF and there were a lot of great bands there. Tribe, uh, Tribe Called Quest was doing their last show ever because Fife Dog passed away and he, they, that was it. They, they didn't want to do any more shows. So we got to see Tribe Called Quest. Missy Elliott was kind of doing a, um, a rebirth, a comeback kind of thing. We saw her that night. 
saw some other great artists. But as I was going through the concert and we were waiting in different lines, talking to different people, I was asking all the people well over half my age who they were here to see. And they all used just one word, Frank. We're here to see Frank. And I was like, wow, this Frank Ocean cat's got the kids spinning. It's, it must be special. So when his show was coming up, now we had walked a lot. And I forget like the past couple days, we were just exhausted. So, and obviously at these festivals, you're standing. So we went and we made our way to the venue where Frank Ocean was playing and kind of slipped into there and started to listen to his music. And it, it was a very bare bones kind of presentation. It was him on a stage by himself. I remember he had a little piano keyboard thing. Um, there was a big screen and camera was on him and I think it was a round stage. I can't, be, I can't remember exactly. But what, what impressed me the most was, you know, at concerts, it's raucous and loud. And there's always, you know, things happening somewhere in the crowd, yelling, screaming. But what he, he hypnotized the crowd to the point where when he was talking, no one else was talking. <clears throat> I don't think I've ever experienced anything quite like this before. The, the silence that came over the crowd. His music is not, you know, loud and hip hoppy. It's kind of R&B smooth kind of stuff. I don't, know, I don't know how to describe it, actually. But there, everybody was just so quiet when he spoke and when he performed. And you were able to actually really enjoy the music without any, any interruptions <clears throat> or screaming going on out there. And like I said, he hypnotized the crowd and he hypnotized me. And I know there was one part where he was um, playing a song and suddenly on the big screen, Brad Pitt came up. And Brad Pitt was there at the show. Uh, and I think Brad Pitt was on the phone at the time or something. But I come to find out that I guess Frank Ocean was important to Brad Pitt in one time of his life. I think when he was going through his divorce with, with Angelina Jolie. I think it helped him in some way. I don't know. I could see how music helps people in situations like that. It does for all of us. Carries us through very, very difficult times. So he was, he was on stage or backstage and they had a camera on him while Frank Ocean was playing. And I was like, fuck, this is so cool. So cool. And I, I left there like completely mesmerized by Frank Ocean and much to my chagrin, never got to see him again because I don't think he played anywhere again. I know there was an ill-fated previous, um, attempt to be at Coachella and I think maybe it was he canceled or didn't something happened maybe might have been the COVID stuff I don't remember but I know it didn't pan out so now he's going to be at Coachella and he's going to be on the third day of Coachella which tells you how important they see this and all the other artists 
I'm lost on, you know, as you get older, some of these musical groups I'm, I'm not familiar with, but what I do is I invest time now. If I'm going to go to Coachella, which I've never been to, if I'm going to go, I'm only, some of my money's work. I'm not only going to go there for Frank Ocean. I'm going to want to see who else is playing there and go see what they got. Because you never know when you're going to discover that one artist, which is really what you hope to happen. Like we went to Voodoo Fest in New Orleans and I can't remember the name of the artist that escapes me right now, but I was blown away. And now I, he's another influencer for me. Uh, I love his stuff. And I was like, damn, this guy is really good. I would have never discovered it if I didn't go see him live perform. He's one of the artists that are actually better live than on, uh, on the air. So, um, you know, Frank Ocean, it's a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. And he had a brother that died a couple of years ago. And, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And I imagine so will a lot of other people. It's got to be kind of going viral that they're, they're going to get to see Frank Ocean perform. So in a, in a conversation last night I was having with my wife, she, you know, we were driving by um, a, a venue and it said that REO Speedwagon is going to be playing there. And so here's, here's the rub. Some of these bands, I, I know they're iconic and, and they've left us with amazing memories, okay? Uh, I get it. REO Speedwagon for sure is one of those bands. I only know three of their songs. My wife loves them. It was one of her favorite bands growing up. But I'm not, I wouldn't go out of my way to go see REO Speedwagon, just like so many other bands. The last person that I saw that I was convinced into going seeing was Paul, Paul Simon, and it was awful. It was awful. And every time I've gone to one of these vintage, you know, classic rock kind of concerts, they have left me very disappointed. Because it, for me, I, it's, again, I'm only speaking for myself. I know what other people think. But for me, I like energy, the rawness, the originality of the artist when they're still creating, when that passion is still there, when they're still driving, when there's, there's you can just feel it when they're performing. They put out a show. Bruce Springsteen still does this to this day. The Rolling Stones still do it to this day. But so many other bands are just cash and checks. And they go out there and they sit on a stool or whatever or get in front of a microphone and they barely connect with the crowd. And I just don't vibe with that kind of energy. So you know, there was a, a little mini debate over that and, and I understood her point of view and I happened to agree with her point of view that, you know, these are nostalgic moments and they bring you back to a time in your life when they, this music was very important. I understand that the music part, it's the, the performance part that kind of gets me going in the wrong direction because we're paying to go see this and we want to see some resemblance of maybe what they used to be. And I know that's impossible. I know that. But that's why I don't want to go to see these shows because I don't want to see them 
hobbling around. I love Elton John, okay? Love Elton John. But you could see, you know, how time has caught up with Elton just when he walked around the stage. He, you know, had some difficulty. But that just happens with age. And, and I get that. This was a unique moment in time that I wasn't going to miss. And he put out, let me tell you, he did a great job. The whole band did a great job. Uh, it left me with memories that I'll never forget. And I still go to Disney Plus and watch portions of that show today. I mean, I, I watched one two nights ago. I watched a portion of it. Rocketman was probably one of the most epic musical moments in my life. It was just, I was left tingling after that song and his performance. But, you know, just Elton's retiring, right? He's going to slow down because you can't do it anymore. And some people don't understand that, that they can't do it anymore. And they're just going to keep going. And their loyal fans continue to support them. God bless them. God bless them. But for me, I, I don't know. I just, I don't want to remember them like that. I, I want to remember them when they were at their best. That's just me. And that's just me. So, um, yeah, so I wanted to kind of just put that out there. It's, it's always been, you know, a conversation with me and my wife in particular, because she would say, Hey, look, who's playing at here. And I'd be like, mm, well, if you really, really want to go, I'll go. Listen, I got dudes from the old time, you know, like I'll give you an example of somebody that's, um, old school for me was um, Wyclef Jean, right? Wyclef Jean was from 80s, 90s, right? And he's got to be in his 50s, I imagine. But I know, I, I don't know him, but I know his music and I know who he is. And I know that if I show up at one of his shows, it's going to be really, really good. And the last time we went to a, a downtown LA theater, he played it was really fantastic. Even my wife, you know, who's, he, she likes his music. She loved it also. So I'm a searcher for those moments, you know, unique moments where I know it's going to be epic and it's going to leave me with something that I can breathe off of for a long time, the same way the Elton show did. Uh, I just can't keep going to the same concerts, the same people every year because it's just the music that I like. I'm just not going to do that. I don't want to watch a person's physical deterioration happened before me. I want to remember them the way that they were. So that's just me. All right, I'm going to take a short break. I got a lot of stuff to talk about today. I'll be right back. You are listening to the OG Middleman Podcast. By the way, you can email me at the OG Middleman Podcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or requests. I'll be right back. So when you play sports, if you are into athletics and you progress through the natural progression of ability throughout your whole life, meaning you start out in, I don't know, a little league and then you want to get better. So you train and practice and train and practice to become better so you can play with better competition as you get older. There's some inherent risks that come along with that. And there's some benefits too. So the benefits obviously are your health because you want to compete in sports or athletics. You're going to train and exercise. You're going to work out 
and it's going to make your physical body stronger. Your heart's going to be stronger. And, you know, there's, there's, there's no discounting that it will provide you with many, many benefits if you're in sports and you're training and exercise to be competitive in sports. That's a fact. But there's another fact about that also. And that is that you are going to grind away at your body little by little by little. And when I say grind away, I mean your joints, breaking down your muscle tissue, your feet, um, you know, your, your head, because that's what I want to get into, into concussions. Uh, but if you play a lot of this stuff and compete a lot, there is a, a degeneration that's going to happen. And I'm, I'm experiencing it now at 57 or 58. I'm 58. I love pickleball. And I'm finding, you know, listen, I'm a big guy, so it's a little bit harder for me to do some things. But I'm discovering that I get more aches and pains and some are chronic. And I know that playing pickleball is hastening some injuries to happen, particularly on my knees and one knee in particular. But I can't. I can't come to the, you know, understanding that I'm not going to be able to play pickleball because of my knee. I just won't accept it. I'm willing to sacrifice the continued degeneration of my knees so I can play something that I absolutely love. It's this is this the sport is going to feed me and my spirit for years to come. And it's new to me, so I'm still kind of on the upward growth, but that's only going to last so long because I can only do so much with an aging body. Uh, but I, in my brain, I still believe that I'll be competitive with anybody anywhere. That's just me. And until my body tells me you can't do it, I'm going to continue to try. Now, my knee might be doing that right now. I don't know. So a knee is one thing. But a brain in your head is a completely different matter. And we're in the beginning of the NFL playoffs. If you're a football fan or not, uh, the playoffs are starting. And there's a quarterback that plays for the Miami Dolphins. And his name is Tua Tagovailoa. I think I pronounced that right. Tagovailoa. Um, but he was, he played for the university of Alabama and he was a fantastic collegiate quarterback, um, came to the NFL first couple of years was good, but not great. But this year in the beginning, it was his breakout year because they surrounded him with special talent and it was working and he was approaching becoming a great quarterback. He is a great quarterback, but he got a concussion. And it knocked him out. The NFL, in their now late wisdom, discovering about what is happening to our brains from playing sports, particularly football, what it's doing to, to 
um, how it's affecting us later on in our lives, the constant pounding of our heads in the helmets, how it's affecting our lives later on, or any sport where you're getting your head banged around it. That they're finding through, you know, um, uh, I forget what it's called, but uh, and, uh, and something that affects the brain and it causes um, a human being to do things that maybe they normally wouldn't do. So Tua had the uh, concussion and came back, played a couple games, played well, team was doing well, but now got a second concussion. And I think this might be his third. I think he may have had one last year. And I think he had now two this year. And the last one he had, it didn't seem like his head got hit all that hard, but my suspicion is that the accumulation of this for his own physical being in his, you know, noggin is starting to now become very weak and he can't sustain these kind of hits, even small hits. So I don't think he's going to play this week. And most likely it means his team is going to lose because they need him to beat the team that they're playing. But more importantly is what's going to happen. What kind of decisions is he going to make now going forward as a competitor, but more importantly as a human being, knowing that his brain keeps getting mushed and they got to keep pausing him. When is too much too much? And... When it, you know, is the chance of having permanent injury becoming so great that it's going to make him walk away from the game that he loves? There was a recent football game uh, a couple weeks ago where a player sustained, again, watching it on TV, it didn't seem like it was all that much, but he sustained an injury that actually stopped his heart. And they had to do CPR on the field. Okay, which I've, I've never seen this before in any sport anywhere in my life where you had to do CPR to, to restart someone's heart. It was awful. It was so awful watching it that they canceled the game. I've never seen that happen either. Uh, I think maybe the last time I saw that happen was in the 80s in the earthquake in Oakland. They stopped the game because of an earthquake, but I've never seen them stop a game for an injury like this before. But clearly... It was a terrifying thing. Now, that guy who was just coming into his own, getting ready to play in the playoffs with a great team, now he has to decide, what am I going to do? He's out of the hospital now. He's out. And I don't know if what the doctor's recommendations are. I haven't seen anything yet, but I'm, I'm wondering if he has ideas of going back to play. By the way, they're playing the same team that Tua is on. Tua is on the Dolphins. Silver Gentleman Hamlin is on the Bills. And those two teams are playing each other. So you have those two dynamics converging at the same time where each team has a player where they sustained injuries that were life-threatening, both of them. 
and both have to decide now, am I going to continue to play this, not only this year, but what's the risk playing going forward? Many players have quit football in their prime. Players who have just realized that the constant concussions that I'm getting and the abuse that I'm giving my body, it's just going to take a toll on me in the long term and I'm not going to have a quality of life. And it's true, particularly in a sport like football where I read somewhere a while ago, I don't know if it's changed, but like the average lifespan for a running back position in the football is something like 64 years old or 65 years old. It's like the shortest of all the uh, positions in football. So you have to kind of take in consideration is the, the risk and the, the spirit of competition that stokes your fires, is that worth more than the quality of life that you're going to sacrifice later on? It's an interesting conversation to have. If I could tell you this, if I were a new parent, I would not put my kid in football. And I didn't put my son in football. He didn't really gravitate towards it. He gravitates more towards baseball. But I would not put my son in football, not with the way things are now, not what we know about uh, the injuries that are sustainable. It's just not, it just doesn't make sense any longer. And until football changes the way that they compete, this is the way it's going to be. I think football needs to start thinking about changing the rules as a whole to not make it so violent or create equipment that's going to make it safer. And I don't know how that's going to happen, but it's going to take a visionary and a big jump, a big risk to do that, to make it a more speed and agility kind of sport than rather a, you know, a physical bang up kind of sport. I know that's not a popular thing because we, as spectators relish in those hits and those tackles because uh, we feel it when it happens. We're like, ooh, that is going to hurt. But we've also witnessed terrible injuries. And that comes along with it. And it's not just football. Football is probably the most extreme example, but every sport out there has its risks. I think, you know, baseball, you get hit in the head with a ball, um, and, you know, hit in the noggin with a baseball going 100 miles an hour, that's going to cause some problems. Uh, basketball, the constant pounding up and down of the hardwood, hockey, you know, all of those, they, you're, you're making a sacrifice. You're making a sacrifice for your future. I don't know. Football needs to change. That's my personal opinion. So because I can't sleep well, I wake up in the middle of the night, I need uh, a stimulant or stimuli to help me fall asleep, like television. So when I wake up in the middle of the night, my brain goes into, into wake-up mode, and I'm starting to think about shit. Whether it be good or bad, I start to think, and it keeps me up. I can't relax and refocus. What gets me relaxed is a, misdir a misdirection kind of thing. Let me go focus on this. I know reading a book would be a great thing to do, but it still wakes up my wife. I'm going to have to turn on a light. Um, so I go downstairs. I'll get up 
I'll leave the bedroom and I'll go downstairs to the guest room and I'll watch TV in the guest room and then fall asleep. And as soon as I put it on, nine times out of 10, within five or 10 minutes, I'm out again. And then I'll fall asleep for three, three or four hours from there. So last night I woke up and I was looking for something to watch. And unfortunately, I happened across a documentary on Netflix. And the documentary follows the story of a homeless guy who he was a hitch he was hitchhiking to San Francisco and he was picked up by a guy and they stop somewhere the guy gets into an argument with a woman not the hitchhiker but the guy who's driving him gets into some kind of argument and he the the man physically attacks this woman and he's a big giant guy and he starts beating on this woman or strangling her or something like that and so the hitchhiker to go and try to defend the woman takes an axe which he was carrying in his backpack a hatchet they call it and beats the guy over the head like three hard wax in his head and stops him from beating the woman. So a news station, I think it was in Fresno, happens to hear this on the radio, on, the, on this police scanner, and shows up at the site of the event and interviews the hatchet-wielding hitchhiker. That's the way they, that's what they called him. The hatchet hero hitchhiker. Uh, and he turns out that he has this incredible personality and the person who's interviewing him and the television viewers and television producers right away realize they've got something special here. So other new news new stations pick up on it quickly and they want to interview him. And he says, no, I'm only going to, I'm only interviewing with this one radio station. And the radio, the uh, television station, rather, the television station, you know, runs this, this broadcast. People want to know who he is and he becomes famous. I mean, he go, he goes viral for this and he's posing for pictures everywhere. People want to give him stuff. Television shows start contacting him. We want to do a TV series on him. We wanted him to go on the Kardashians. He ends up going on Jimmy Kimmel. I mean, an incredible rocket to fame. But one of the things that I recognized right away, pretty quickly, was that there was something off about him. There was something, yeah, he was a very entertaining human being, and there's the word entertainment, what we'll do for entertainment. But there was something not right. He's that's not the, the way he's acting is not normal. Funny, cool, entertaining, yes, but not normal. But it did not stop television from wanting to make him a star. They just wanted him and everybody wanted a piece of him very, very quickly. And they offered him the moon to do things 
and he was walking away from stuff. Walking away from million dollar deals, saying, yeah, I just want to go up to San Francisco and get high. That's basically what he told them. Yeah, I'll pass up on that deal. But they said, hey, listen, what if we give you a lot of weed? And then he liked that idea. So he ended up going on the Jimmy Kimmel show. And Jimmy Kimmel gave him a surfboard because he was a surfer skateboarder dude and came from Dogtown. Well, turns out that the, the kid has a history. And he ends up going across to New Jersey, ends up in New Jersey, New York somehow, and ends up meeting a guy. And the guy does something to him. We'll call it inappropriate. I'm not going to, I won't give it all away. Well, fuck it, just give it away. But does something that he says he sexually assaulted him. So the hitchhiker, his name was Kai, kills this man, a 70-year-old man, and says he was self-defense. The guy was trying to molest me, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's a 19, 20-year-old guy, whatever he was, versus a 70-year-old man. Come on. Um, something wasn't right in the story, but he, but he kills the man and leaves. But detectives piece together some little clues, which was fascinating in itself that they were able to find this guy based on the clues that were left in the house. It wasn't DNA. It was a train ticket and, you know, like a scrawl piece of paper with a name on it. The, the guy's house just had stuff all over the place, but they found clues and they found a video of this guy, Kai, with the old man. And then chased him down and arrested him and convicted him of murder. Now, the kid, before, while he was being pursued, was posting stuff on Facebook. And one of the things he posted on there was, what would you do if you woke up and this guy was doing this to you and you had this, this, and this, and it was gross. It was gross. What would you do? How would you react? Would, you know, basically saying if a pedophile was attacking you, what would you do? Would you kill him? Basically what he was saying. Would you kill this pedophile? And needless to say, my brain started going a million miles a minute saying, okay, hmm, what would I do? You know, now you can't murder people. I mean, listen, you can't kill anybody. It's just it. There's just no, no arguing that. You're not going to kill somebody. But that moment of insanity where somebody's doing something to you and you don't think and you kill that person. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes you pause for a second. But then you come back to reality and say, wait a minute, he killed him. You know, whatever that guy was, you... you you can't be judge, jury, and executioner and kill this guy. So the documentary is absolutely fascinating. Find it on Netflix. You will enjoy it. And it brought about a very interesting dynamic with another documentary that I watched the day before. I'm sure a lot of people have you have you you've seen the documentary Grey Gardens. It came out in the 19. Uh, 70s, early 1970s. I'm going to take a short break and I'm going to tell you about Grey Gardens. I'll be right back. So Grey Gardens follows the story of a 
family from, let's say, the 1920s, the 30s, 1920s and 30s. Father, husband was very wealthy, not sure what he did, but wealthy enough that he had several homes and staff to work on him. And the home in the Hamptons was basically a mansion and had a you know place in New York City and living a life of high sophistication, high society to the point where, you know, their daughters would, their daughter, you know, was like that thing where they bring out the debutante and say, here, we're offering him up, offering her up to the world. Now, you know, she's available to meet another wealthy man. And so they were living this incredible life. And then I guess the stock market crashed and things changed and they couldn't sustain it. I think the husband and wife fell out of love with another one another, which was probably already happening. And, you know, they ended up separating or getting a divorce. And the husband said, okay, we're going to live two different lives here. You stay in this house in the Hamptons and I'm going to go stay in New York. And he remarried someone else and the daughter, um, kind of was dual residence thing, but she really wanted to be in New York because she wanted to be an actress, dancer kind of thing. So that's really where she wanted to be. So shows the documentary. That's what she wanted. But what was interesting is, is that as you were watching this documentary and you were looking at the daughter, you can see that, yeah, she was smart and she had something about her but there was also something not right about her. Something was off. Um, I don't know what category to put her in, but as cute and charming as you saw her behavior, you would also find it kind of worrisome. And so the mother, she ends up with the mother living full time at their home called Gray Gardens in the Hamptons. Unfortunately, they run out of money and they have no caretakers and neither one of them are equipped to take care of themselves. And the house falls into disrepair to say the least becomes overgrown and becomes a nuisance to the East Hamptons community. So cats are now living in this house and producing more cats. So the health department comes in and raids the house and takes these cats and say, you have to clean this up and get this in this condition or you are out of here because you're a health hazard. What I didn't mention was that this woman, Edith, was part of the uh, Bouvier family, which was the Jacqueline Kennedy. She was part of Jacqueline Bouvier's family related somehow. So there was a lot of wealth in the family and she, you know, had connections. So when, when that they raided the house, the newspapers picked up on it and it was making the pages in the newspapers and it became a hot topic. And they, they called out Jackie saying, how could Jackie with all her money and influence? And I think Kennedy had already been assassinated and she may have remarried but they were like, wow, with all the money you have, you're letting your aunt or cousin, whoever it was, suffer like this. 
So ultimately, Jackie shows up and does something for them and saves them, and they stay in this house. So what I'm trying to draw is the correlation of entertainment value and cameras and us trying to make somebody famous. As I was watching Grey Gardens, I couldn't help but think was that is this documentary and these filmmakers really doing something for them or are they manipulating what they already recognize as something, a situation that is kind of awful and they're taking advantage of it because they know people are going to watch this the same way people want to watch train wrecks or bad things happen. It's just what we do. It's why television news is popular. It is because we watch all the bad shit that comes on. So this, these document documentarians were making this movie kind of taking advantage of the situation, showing it to the public. And it became a classic kind of cult documentary later on picked up by Drew Barrymore and uh, Jessica Lange, who played the, the, the mother and the sister and the daughter in Grey Gardens, the movie, followed by another documentary that documentary that came out in 2006 with newfound footage of the family. So it's, I recommend watching them all. And we did, we watched it all in one night, but there's that time in 1970 when, when we started watching this train wreck. And then now we have this thing with this kid the hatchet-wielding hero and how a television news station picked up on it and Hollywood wanted to make him famous without even really thinking about it. You know, like, what was the history of this guy? What, you know, who starts whacking, whacking somebody over the head with uh, an axe? I mean, that takes some balls and you got to snap too. I mean, you got to really snap to be able to do that and and the way he talked about it and, and you'll see through the arc of the film how all of the stuff comes out about this kid and what they ultimately find out and they find out that yeah he had some mental problems and he was convicted and he's in prison um so to what extent are we willing to make people famous when we're clearly seeing that they're not stable and we're going to throw cameras on them. It's kind of, hmm, I guess I'm torn because look at me. I'm talking about it because I watched it. I watched it. And if I had known about this hatchet-wielding guy, I probably would have watched that too. And we're all, we're all part of this thing for fame and what people are willing to do for fame and what, how we're willing to take advantage of people who are, you know, not able to recognize. I mean, look at the, um, what was the TV show? Uh, I can't remember, but it was, you know, a family from, I, I want to say the South and a honey boo boo, honey boo boo and their family and how the cameras followed them around and made entertainment value out of them and provided them with an income they never would have gotten before. But clearly, there wasn't something right about what was happening in that family. But we were allowed to be voyeur, voyeurs into that life and got entertainment value from it. I personally didn't watch it. I, didn't, I thought it was too much manipulation. It was kind of gross. I didn't watch that show. But a lot of people did.
a lot of people did. And that's, you know, kind of what our key reality TV entertainment value is these days. It's us being allowed to be voyeurs into other people's lives, whether it be good or bad, like the Kardashians, which I've never watched an episode of because I find it, uh, listen, they're fucking killing it. Okay. They are super wealthy beyond any imagination and they did it. They took advantage of whatever fame was presented to them and they did it. I ain't hating. I ain't hating on them. And, you know, they've made some good business decisions and still do to this day. Whatever it is, they did it. I ain't hating. But I'm not watching it because it's just uninteresting to me to watch other people's lives in that way. I just don't find that, you know interesting to me um, because I don't wish to be that way, I guess. I don't want to have, I mean, I wouldn't mind being that wealthy and having access to whatever I want anytime. Yeah, that's, you know, a given. I think a lot of people would like that. But the popularity of that television show and the brands they build will tell you who we are as Americans. It's who we are as Americans and it's how Donald Trump became president because that's the same kind of American base that votes for somebody like Donald Trump. It's what I call the Kardashian uh, complex. The Kardashian effect. The Kardashian effect. That fame drawn out of nothing, out of doing crazy things and letting a camera follow you around and you can say and do whatever you want and people just sit there slack-jawed and say, oh my God, wow, I can't believe that. Yeah, that's what it is. Kim Kardashian became famous because a boyfriend that she was dating released a porn tape and that brought her on the map, the Kardashian effect. And that's all anybody wants to do these days, by the way, is just do something to be notorious. Every, anybody would come out with a celebrity porn tape now. That was the thing. Like, do we have one? Does anybody have one? Maybe we should make one. Let's put it out there and become famous. And it worked. It worked. We ate it up. And we still will eat it up. So, you know, that's our culture. That's our culture. So my, um, this is kind of a movie recommendation Double, a double movie recommendation to watch. I can't say watch them all in one day because it's quite, that would be quite the viewing um, situation. You'd have to commit eight hours to that. But watch that documentary um, about this hatchet wielding guy because that one just came out and everybody, everybody will be talking about it. I never heard of it, but it was pretty popular in California for a minute. But uh, watch that. It's an incredible story. And then watch Great Gardens. And that's also very interesting. My wife loved it. She couldn't peel her eyes away from it. She didn't know either to laugh or, or be shocked at certain times. But um, it was an interesting, you know, look into the lives of uh, a couple of women who clearly were struggling. And, uh, but ultimately, God help and... God love them. They were never unhappy, though. The, document, the documentary never showed them being unhappy, even in the worst conditions. No running water, no heat, nothing. House falling apart, raccoons living in the house with them. 
They never showed him being unhappy. Actually, they showed him quite the opposite, being very happy. Dancing, singing, you know, talking to the people in the film. Uh, it was fascinating to watch. Uh, so that's my recommendation to do. And that will bring me to the end of this podcast. Um, you can reach out to me at ogmiddleman at gmail.com if you would like to comment or if you want to be interviewed, whatever you want. I'm open to it. Even if you hate, you can hate. Send it. I want to read it. Uh, I will be developing a a blogs of sort uh, coming up here soon. Um, just started building it. Uh, that'll be uh, attached to this podcast and you'll be able to maybe read and, and I'll put some other notes on there. And I will be setting up uh, soon. So actually you can see my ugly mug and I'm probably going to do some little TikToks or something, maybe uh, short 10 minute, 15 minute bursts of podcasts on TikTok. So I can start kind of promoting it out there because it's all about getting listeners. And that's what I want. I want you, I want to create interesting, um, provocative entertainment for you guys. And, you know, hopefully it spreads and I can bring some happiness, some awareness, whatever, some whatever. I don't care. Uh, I'm enjoying doing this. It really is not even hard. Um, and I hope it turns into something that I can do for a long time and, um, make myself happy and others happy too, or pissed off. That's it. Thanks for listening. Please share. Love you guys. Peace and love. Bye-bye.